0: Well, we're going to step into the teaching this morning, and I'm going to pray with you in just a minute. This is a unique setting in which uh, we're going to do something different than what we've ever done here before at New Hope. I'm going to invite a couple individuals up here on platform to join me in about 12 minutes, but I'll explain that to you in just a moment. If you're new here, we're working through this very short series called Revealing Jesus, just four weeks long. And in the very beginning, first week, we did this question of where did Jesus come from? What's the origination point? And we discovered he'd always been. He's always existed. And then two weeks ago, or last week, we looked at what did his coming accomplish, and we studied the blood covenant and how that relates to us, God's promise to us. Well, today what we're going to look at is how does it make a difference? So we're going to contrast it with this life before Jesus and life after Jesus by looking at two individuals in the New Testament and two individuals from our own congregation and have them help us to understand this, this transformation. So let's pray together, and I'm going to ask you just to consider this question while you work through it this morning. Have I ever allowed Jesus to become real to me? Is Jesus real to me? Let's pray together and then we'll step in. Father, we recognize that what we're about to undertake is uh, monumental proportions, because it, it deals in eternity, and it deals in the spiritual realm, and there are things that we grasp to understand, but you said that there's only one way to understand it, and that's through the activity and the work of your Holy Spirit, so we invite the teaching and the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit in this place, that we would know you and we would encounter you better. We ask for this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So, when you get to the end of the book of John, I I asked you to turn there if you got a chance to do that. Um, Maybe you found a Bible around you in the pew rack. When you get to the end of the book of John, in John 19 and John 20, what you find is John 19 begins to read like a news story. It's very factual. He states things just exactly as they are, almost seemingly absent of emotion. Here's a couple of examples. He says in verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 16, So he, meaning Pilate, then handed him, meaning Jesus, over to them to be crucified. Very straightforward. Look at the next verse, verse 42. Since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Almost like an obituary. Jewish, male, 33 years old, executed by Rome. Memorial service to be held Sunday morning at the Jerusalem Cemetery. And when everything seems to have failed, the most unlikely events occur and begin to unfold. When you shift from chapter 19 to chapter 20, it's no longer facts and statistics. It's real life, raw emotion. So verse 1 of chapter 20 starts out, on the first day of the week, the day after Sabbath, meaning Sunday, some women were headed to the memorial service. All the Marys are together. I don't know if you've ever looked before, but there's a whole bunch of them in the New Testament. It seems like there's like four or five of them together. And Mary of Magdala, Mary Magdalene, is at the front of the pack. Matter of fact, she separated herself from the rest. She arrives at the tomb, and she sees this monster boulder that was placed over the opening of the tomb has been moved out of the way. It's been shifted. Now, rather than go forward and investigate, apparently she turns and runs out of fear And heads to Peter's house. And she begins pounding on the door. Stop eating breakfast. You've got to come and see what has happened. Pick it up with me in verse 2 in chapter 20. It says this. She ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. John's writing in the third person talking about himself here. And said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And we do not know where they have laid him. See, she's immediately jumped to a conclusion. The worst fear is that the enemies could steal Jesus' body, and that's the conclusion that she came to. So Peter and John, as a result, are off to the races. Go with me to verse 3. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple read ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. This is so great, because John's 90 when he's writing this. So he's remembering that he could run at one point in his life, Right? And so if you read the story, he actually says three times, I beat Peter, right? I outran him. You see it right there. So Peter's unable to keep up. John's writing this with kind of a grin across his face. What's going on? There's there's this powerful emotion that what they're hearing and what they're seeing is incomprehensible. Verse 5 helps us to understand that. Uh, And stooping, verse 5, and stooping and looking in, he, meaning John, saw the linen wrappings lying there. But he did not go in. In verse 6, And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. Now Peter and John are both winded, bending over, catching their breath, and then Peter uses that moment to step into the tomb, but John stands outside. And we find in verse 5 and 6, they both saw the linen wrappings lying there, but John, for whatever reason, hesitates. Maybe it's fear of ritual defilement that he doesn't want to ceremonially get next to a dead body, but that doesn't cause Peter any hesitation. He rushes right in, no inhibitions whatsoever, and what he sees is absolutely astounding. No body, just linen wrappings. That may not seem like such a big deal to you, but it is not a minor detail. Can you imagine this week perhaps a family member or a friend passed away and maybe by Friday at the end of the week you show up at a funeral and wherever the funeral is held at, you walk up to the front of the auditorium and it's an open casket and you look inside and all you see is clothing. Would that not freak you out a little bit? Maybe like, hey, do you guys know there's no body in here? Can you imagine being at a man's funeral and just seeing a suit and tie, white shirt, a watch, a wedding ring? but nothing but clothing, no body. What's going on here? So we understand that grave robbers would never dare undress a body if they were going to steal the body, but that's the story that's been spread around Jerusalem. So the fact that this linen wrappings is mentioned twice by two eyewitnesses who have been there is pretty significant because the presence of the wrappings proves something. The story's been circulated that somebody stole the body. Well, the disciples would never steal the body, and certainly they would not undress the body and dishonor Jesus by carrying him across town naked. But more than that, we understand that this linen wrapping has some very specific facts to it. When a body in the first century was wrapped in linen cloth, they always started at the top of the chest, up by the shoulders, And did the head and neck separate, but when they began wrapping it, they would put spices in each fold of the cloth as they wrapped it around the body. And as the decaying body chemically reacted to the spices that were in the folds of the linen, it caused the linen to become hard, almost as though a varnish had been put over the linen cloth, causing it to become a hard shell. So you find Lazarus, when he's in the tomb and Jesus resurrects him and brings him out, he actually has to give instructions to people. Take the wrappings off him. They had to remove them physically. To do that, you destroyed the wrappings. But laying in the tomb is this empty cocoon, which has retained its shape. The Greek language is very specific about this. Now, there's only one way that could possibly happen. Can you imagine the tangled emotions of seeing what you see before you, the the fear, the anxiety, the apprehension. Now, we come to this story in verse 7 where it says it was not just that detail, but verse 7 says there's something about the face cloth. Look with me at this. And the face cloth, which had been on his head, is not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. You're looking at eyewitness details. Only eyewitnesses could record it that way. And this is not the sort of thing you would dream up. Rolled up in a place by itself has something very specific to it. There's a word in your notes this morning. It's in the Greek language, and it's this word, entelusio. And it means all the intricacies of the linen wrappings are still bound tightly together. And this is what it specifically means. The cloth that is wrapped around Jesus' neck and his head is still retaining its shape. But it's put aside, according to one of the other stories in the New Testament, it's actually put at the feet of this cocoon of the linen. Who put it there? Well, Jesus, right? Okay, so can you imagine the grin on his face when he sets it aside and thinks, wait till they see this? If God used emojis, he'd put one right here with a big smiley face, right? It's just beaming smile, because we know this is just an absolutely remarkable situation. Now, I'll be the first to admit, I'll be first among you to say, there is nothing about an empty tomb to compel you to belief in a resurrection. It just isn't. We see empty grave sites all the time. You can drive by any cemetery and see a pile of dirt on the grass and somebody may put a blanket over it to make it look pretty, but it's still a pile of dirt. Well, that doesn't cause me to look at that grave and say, wow, that person must be resurrected. They're not in the tomb. That doesn't cause you to believe. They just think, well, they're not buried yet. So what's going on in John's emotions? Because he's putting these pieces together. So he has hit a moment, a moment that you will face or you already have faced in your life, and it's called the crisis of belief. What do I do with this information? What do I do with this? Is this God activity? And what you believe about God in moments like this is absolutely revealed. What you believe about God is revealed in moments like this. because John's in a dark place. Think of the trauma in his life. Three years closest friend on Earth, the one he thought is the Messiah has been executed by Rome. Peter's feeling the same thing. The, the women are crying because they don't understand who stole the body. You talk about a dark place to be. That's a dark place. And he's in the midst of real life trauma and he's wondering, is this God or not? So I want to stop right there. We're going to leave John standing outside the tomb, Peter's inside the tomb, for about 10 minutes. And I'm going to invite two friends to come up here and join me who have gone through similar journey to what you've just seen described here in the sense that they've come to this place where it's kind of dark. And they're trying to understand who Jesus is. So, Brad and Beth, would you come on up here? And I'm just going to slide this aside for a minute. Give us just a second while we get some chairs up for them. So, Brad and Beth, this is everybody. Everybody, this is Brad and Beth. And uh, they just met each other last night. They're not married or anything. Um, Brad's wife is Lou. She goes by, Mary, goes by Lou. Her full name is Mary Lou. And uh, Brad has three sons. And uh, a couple grandkids, Beth has a son, single, two sons. Yeah, I left that one out in the last service. This is like their third time doing that, so like kudos to you guys, you know, all right? Um, Brad had told me yesterday, if, if he had been asked to do this 12 months ago, he'd be like, well, you give me your response. No way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so here's why it's unique to have them up here. Um, they both have come to Jesus within the last 12 months, both have become Christians, right? And uh, Beth has had zero or very little prior church experience. Um, th- this is all very new to her. So reading the Bible, lots of questions. Saturday night's pretty raw for her. That's why she describes it, because we do a lot of Q&A there. And, and for Brad, you know, I've been in church a lot, um, but Jesus never became real to him. But both going through some fairly dark areas in their life and I asked them a couple questions in advance a couple weeks ago, so they'd have some time to think about it, to share with you about it, what it means when Jesus becomes real to you and what that looks like. So we'll start out this way. Um, for Brad, when you would think of 12 months ago, your view of Jesus versus your view of Jesus now, how would you describe that?
1: Uh, oh, well, my view 12 months ago was based on 59 years or so of not being a believer, mm-hmm. and um, so it was, it was easy to, for me to think of Jesus as just a um, biblical mythical figure, you know, somebody that did these remarkable, amazing things that, to a non-believer, were so hard to comprehend. Um, I doubted it, uh, didn't believe it, and we'll hear more about that yeah. uh, later. But I, I just I, I didn't want to believe it, and I've I thought literally about these. Uh, acts and these remarkable things that that, that Jesus did. And um, so that you know, was my previous view of Jesus. And after January 7th of this year, when I proclaimed him as my Lord and Savior, um, things really changed. My, my life became... Um, Well, I'll say different in a a respect that I I had somebody else to be accountable to. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had, for so long, just did things on my own, um, believed that I I didn't need to have somebody else to to answer to. I had, um, a couple years ago, I had started coming to some Bible studies here at New Hope. Uh, My good friend, Keith Nelson, uh, asked me to come. So I, I came I went I would go home and my wife would say, what how'd it go? I said it was really kind of cool but there's just too much God <laughs> for me. You know I was not a believer. It's just it's just it was just, just kind of over my head. But I really liked the guys. You know and here they would, they would say that that Jesus was would help them out through tough times. And you know I didn't really get that because I could always do that on my own. I didn't I didn't need Jesus. Um, Keith kept inviting me, and I kept coming, and, and um, lo and behold, I finally understood what all that meant, uh, beginning beginning of this year.
0: How would you describe your view now?
1: Uh, my view now is, I, I, I think of, over the years, you know, there have been tugs at me, and the tugs became much stronger last year, and they became... <laughs> pulls at me this year. And I I know now that was God. Mm -hmm. Um, I, for years I could, um, just figure I was the luckiest guy in the world. You know, I had a lot of friends, you know, my kids were doing well. Um, everything I've happened to me was because of luck. And now I know it's, I'm the most blessed person in the world. Mm -hmm. And, um, that, that's, it's such a big difference. Um, Beforehand, you know, I, I thought that, you know, the world revolved around Brad. And, and now I know that God has a plan for me um, and my family. And I just have to be alert and understand what He's, what he's trying to say.
0: In <clears throat> January, after Brad came to talk about three weeks later, he came back and he was pretty angry. And his um, anger was over the fact that he realized that in his teenage years, he had heard the same information about who Jesus is, but in his teenage years decided just to kind of stiff arm God. It wasn't real. It wasn't relevant. And so went off to college and went off into the business world and did real well and didn't have a need, right? Right. And, right. and then November things started getting darker
1: and I, I think the thing that makes that made me the most mad when I, when I talked to Mark is that I was not a, a believer when my, my boys were little yeah. and I, I think that's uh, I, that was robbed of them because, because of me mm-hmm. uh, my wife uh, was a believer for the last 20 or 25 years and she kept tugging me and tugging me, and I just, you know, pushed back. And um, so I think she was, she had more darkness in her life than I did. Because and of that conflict. Because of that yeah. conflict. I didn't realize it. <clears throat> mm-hmm. You know, I was just, I was living the dream,
0: yeah. you know.
1: I've, yeah. And um, so, yeah, so that, that's what I'm the most,
0: you know, mad about. And so we came to the conclusion that you take what you have and you move forward in the in the grace of God, you know, and, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, every day right. is precious, right? right. Um, Beth, for you, the similar question: your view of Jesus before and your view of Jesus now.
2: Um, I, w- I was raised in a household with no no religious education, and we didn't go to church together. We didn't read the Bible, um, so I really didn't know much at all. And
0: excuse me, are you guys hearing her? That mic, okay, okay. My ears are a little plugged up, so I'm not hearing real good.
2: When I was 19, uh, I lived in Traverse City, and my job, uh, I was a receptionist at a TV station. And one of my jobs was to keep an eye on the TV and make sure we didn't go off the air, which did happen quite often back in those days. And there was a show that came on every afternoon, Monday through Friday, that was the Jim and Tammy Faye Baker show, and if you know who they are, they were—I guess—were the evangelists. Is that what you um, call them? Yeah. If you know who Jim
0: and Tammy Faye Baker are, raise your hand. Okay. Yeah. Okay. For the rest of you that don't know, early years TV evangelist and uh, they earned quite a reputation. But I, I won't go into that. Right. Okay.
2: There was a lot of crying. There was a lot of drama. Running mascara, asking yeah. for money, and it, it was—it was funny, but it was also, to me, that's all I knew about Christianity was. This is what it's about. I wanted nothing to do with it, and that stuck with me, that I didn't want that label of being Christian. So the rest, you know, in my adult life, I pursued, I always believed in God, and I was pursuing God through a spiritual path that I thought would lead to God, and it didn't, and that really came to a head a few years ago. Um, I'd had a baby, uh, and he was about two, and my life just sort of fell apart. Uh, My mom had died while I was pregnant. I had sustained an injury. I was in a lot of pain. My marriage was failing. And I I was in such a dark place that I'm not exaggerating when I say I did not think I would live. Mm -hmm. I really didn't. And I had some Christian friends who kind of miraculously appeared and started calling me and giving me Christian materials to read and to listen to. And I still to this day, I mean, clearly it was God working in my life, but it was truly miraculous. The phone would ring when I was in such a dark moment, and it would be a friend saying, let me pray over you. And I thought they were kind of goofy, and, you know, it it was uncomfortable, but I would say, okay, go ahead. And over time, I realized this was helping. This was the only thing that ever did make me feel truly connected. So after a while of letting them keep picking me up and holding me up, I kind of, out of guilt, felt like maybe I should start doing this for myself, you know. So I started pursuing Christianity quietly. I didn't want anyone to know, and um, it got me. I mean, after after a couple of years, I started looking for a church, and I, I found New Hope, and I started coming here. But I um, I didn't have a personal experience uh, with Jesus until almost a year ago, last November. So my prior thoughts were just basically Christianity in general, bad label to have. And now, uh, it's so, this is so profound for me, it's so emotional, it's hard to even really put words to it. But I feel a peace inside. And like I explained earlier, my life is not necessarily easy now. Um, it's just that I feel differently about things. I feel forgiven where I was never able to forgive myself.
0: Mm. Yeah. So, who is Jesus to you now?
2: Jesus is everything. My life, um, my, my faith, my, um, my heart, you know. Mm-hmm. And I want to say, because this is my last time doing this, <laughs> this weekend, I was so not happy with Pastor Mark for asking me to do this. <laughs> my employer was here at the last, um, the last session, uh, Dr. Parallaro, And he came up to me afterwards and he said, Hey, I didn't know you were a public speaker and I didn't know you were doing this this Mm -hmm. week. And I said, I didn't want you to know. I was so nervous, you know. (laughs) But a couple of the ladies, I just want to thank you for reminding me that I'm here to glorify God. This is an opportunity Mm -hmm. and I'm thankful for it now.
0: Cool. And in response to what she's heard this weekend, she's decided to be baptized next weekend. (laughs) Okay. So it's good for you. <clears throat> so you can't change your mind now between now and I know. next Saturday because yeah. Once again, everybody's going to out you, right? Okay. So thank you for doing this, and I appreciate how bold they were to come up and share with you this morning. I wanted you to hear that because it's, it puts real life flesh and bones on what you see going on in the lives of the disciples in this Bible story, because John's right where Brad and Beth were both at, this darkness, things were not going well, and he's, he's looking at the circumstances and he's trying to decide, what do I do with this? How do I handle this information? So he's truly in this crisis of belief, is this God or not? And what you believe about God determines what you do next with the information that you have in front of you. So I'm thinking in this moment, John's standing outside the tomb and this flood of Jesus' words starts swimming through his mind. All the things that he heard over the last three years that Jesus said about Himself. Let me show you just a couple of examples. John 2.19, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. What about this one, John 11? I am the resurrection. What does John do with that kind of information? Well, here's what he does. He takes a step Because of the things God said, put together with what he knows is going on in his world. So we come to verse 8, part A, and it says this. So the other disciple who had come first, John's talking about himself, to the tomb, then also entered. Now John understands there's only one possible explanation for what's in front of him. The Jesus who was buried in the very tomb that he's now standing in is the same Jesus who is risen. So part B of verse 8 says, and he saw and believed. Now John is a whole lot more like you than you think this morning. Yeah, he's a disciple. Yep, he's one of the 12. Yep, he's chosen by Jesus. But he's human. He's human just like we are. And so he's got human eyes, but he's also got spiritual eyes. And I asked you in the very beginning to begin praying that God would give you spiritual eyes and spiritual ears to hear and see the way that you need to this morning. So John sees an empty tomb through human eyes. And through spiritual eyes, what he's seeing is the trophy of Jesus' victory. He's looking at linen on a slab of rock, and he begins to realize this face cloth that has been put aside is a spoil of the war that Jesus has just won. And that's why he believes. It might surprise you to learn that the majority of the believers in the New Testament came to faith in Jesus Christ, not because they saw Jesus physically, but rather because they heard and they believed. And that's John. He's just like us. He believes without physically seeing Jesus. So his dark world is immediately transformed. Now let's contrast that. Let's go to, very quickly to just end this, to another one of Jesus' followers. His name is Thomas. And I want you to understand, as the disciples started hearing this information about what had happened with Jesus, they were not predisposed to believe. So you're going to move forward with me down to verse 19, but I want you to look up on the screen, because this is what's going on in the minds of the followers of Jesus. It says, these words seemed like pure nonsense to them, and they did not believe. Because this is garbage. Are you kidding me? That's fine if you want to believe it. Why would you expect us to believe it? So they're not predisposed to believe. And darkness has a grip on them. They're more interested in the things that are going on in their world, locked behind dark doors with the bolts closed, trying to make sure that they don't get arrested. That's the reality of their world. So we're told in verse 19, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. So for fear, the friends of Jesus are in hiding. Why? Because he's just been executed for treason. And they're known to be associates of his. And there's this story circulating around town that the disciples stole the body of Jesus, that they overpowered the Roman guards. So they're in fear of arrest. I suspect that they're more vulnerable emotionally than at any time they've ever been in their life. And into that moment, with locked doors, John gives us this impression that it's an extraordinary materialization. Jesus appears and he says, peace be with you. And they are terrified and you would be too. They think they're seeing a ghost. A matter of fact, that's what Scripture says. It goes Luke 24, 37. They were startled and terrified thinking they saw a spirit. So I love the verse that follows up. While they're still terrified, watch the next verse, verse 41. And while they still could not believe it for joy and were marveling, he said to them, do you have anything here to eat? (laughs) Isn't that great? So he goes on to say, so they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in front of them. What kind of a body can pass through solid walls and yet still eat food like we do? Well, Paul says it's a mystery. It's the kind of body that you're going to have in eternity. That glorified body, scripture talks about, that's perfect, that's healthy, that's whole, that's unrestricted. And Paul says it's a mystery, so don't bother trying to understand it. If you can explain it, it's not a miracle. But that's not where we're going this morning. I want to move forward, though. Verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, meaning the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So what's going on with Thomas? Is he not in a social mood? Probably not. He's crushed. The guy he thought was the guy is dead, in his mind, and it looks like he doesn't want to hang out with the other people. And so he's going to demand concrete proof. The person that he knew has been murdered in a very specific fashion. And so it's by that fashion of the murder that he develops a measuring rod and he says, these are going to be my standard which, by which I will believe. I want pragmatic evidence. So watch with me, verse 25, so the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Last night, Brad said to me, I was Thomas, that was me, I needed that kind of thing, The verb that's written in the Greek language says that they kept on saying to him over and over and over, and he kept stiff-arming, saying, I'm not interested. Don't go there with me. Thomas is so confident that Jesus is yesterday, that he's in the world of myth. It is beyond the realm of possibility, so he develops some ridiculous proofs. It's fine for you, but don't expect that of me. It doesn't work for me. I don't want to go there. So much like present culture, his doubt is not greater than, but it's not less than. So he's hit the crisis of belief. He's in this in-between state. For Brad, he hit it when he was about 14. And God allowed him to be put on the back burner. And throughout the years, The message of the gospel kept coming back to him over and over and over again. But even as he heard it, he kept pushing it off. That's Thomas. And so God's going to let Thomas sit on the back burner for eight days. Now, just think this through. He has demanded to have the exact same experience that the other apostles have had. Only he goes one step further. He says, I have a non-negotiable, and I won't change my mind on it. I physically want to shove my hand through his hand. It's the word balo. It means push through. I physically, balo, want to be able to push my hand into his side. I want to touch his rib cage. That's the way it's written there. Now, when a person says, I will not believe unless you know that individual has already admitted that they do believe. But that individual is saying, I believe in the validity of my own test. I have faith in my test, in my standards. I had a young lady who's about 20, 22 say to me a few years ago, I would believe in Jesus if he would show up and hover over I-75 and hold a big poster out that says, I'm Jesus. And I said, oh, so what you're telling me is you would believe if Jesus came to earth. She said, absolutely, I would believe if Jesus came to earth. And I said, he did. She looked at me with a blank stare. Like, "Uh uh-oh, I just stepped into it, right? I said, just because he didn't come in your lifetime, does that make it any less valid? You can go to Washington, D.C. and see the United States Declaration of Independence. It was written by people who lived 300 years ago. Does it make it any less real that they didn't actually live? Well, no, I guess not. See, we believe in the validity of our own test. If we can have faith in our own approach, why not have faith in what God has already revealed and God has revealed it through Jesus. So the requirement for evidence is a deeper issue and in Thomas's case that's what's really going on. It's a deeper issue of the heart. What's really going on in his heart? Well, let's wrap it up by looking at verse 26 to see how he responds. After eight days, part A, after eight days his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. Now, Picture Thomas, he's already made it clear that he's not a believer. So why even show up? Why hang out with these other believers? He's not expecting a God encounter. And into that, Jesus comes. Go with me to part B. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. And he locks eyes on Thomas. Hello, Thomas. Watch the next verse. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here with your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. And this should be a huge capital H, huge encouragement to you if you're a non-believer this morning. Jesus takes personal interest in non-believers. He absolutely does. He locks laser focus on Thomas. Thomas. And he boosts him by saying, you need evidence, Tom? I'm here. I'll meet you right at the point of your need. Notice this. Don't let this escape your attention. Do you notice that Jesus knew exactly what Thomas had said, even though he hadn't been in the room when Thomas said it? Do you ever think that God's not hearing you and not paying attention? He knows everything. He sees everything. There's evidence of it right here. So Jesus uses very specific words with him in verse 27. He says, do not be unbelieving, but believing. Do not be apistos, but be pistos. You'll see this word in your notes and you'll see it up on the screen. Apistos, your last Greek word for this moment. It is important because many people confuse Thomas with the label that's been attached to him of a doubter. And that's not what Jesus calls him. He says you are apistos. Ah is the negative portion of the word. You could use it in atheist or theist. You add the A to it and it becomes a negative component. He says this to Thomas You are a pistos, you are not a believer. Here's the difference doubt is intellectual. Doubt says, I want to believe, but I've got so many questions. Help me work through these questions. That's doubt. Somebody who's doubting intellectually, unbelief is a moral issue. Unbelief goes to the heart, simply says, I will not believe, and that's Thomas. See, Here's the deal, Thomas was there when Lazarus was raised from the dead. Thomas saw the resurrection power of God through Jesus in Lazarus and others that Jesus raised from the dead. So why is he questioning this in this moment? Because it doesn't match his criteria. It's not that there's not enough evidence, the evidence is there, the evidence demands a verdict, and that's what Jesus is saying to Thomas. you got all the evidence you need, man. It's not the evidence issue. Don't be an unbeliever. Unbelief says, I will not believe because. See, Thomas gets credit because he's worked a double negative into a sentence. In the Greek language, he actually says, I absolutely will not believe. You can't convince me otherwise. That's why he set such high standards. Hey, show me his hands with the holes. Let me touch his ribcage. So Jesus' response is, you need irrefutable evidence, Tom? The evidence is here, and it's much more than you asked for. Jesus does this because he knows that is not what Thomas needs. He needs a heart encounter with the real Jesus. So in this moment, what you see him doing in the next verse is he is experiencing what many of you have already experienced, and some of you will. Jesus is becoming real to him. Just like Beth and Brad described, Jesus is becoming so real, he has to do something with it. And he expresses, I am undone like Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of glory. Woe to me, for I am undone. I am ruined. Look at Thomas's response in verse 28. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God... He absolutely gets it right. See, he's not professing Jesus is actually resurrected. He's not merely professing that. That's a fact. The empty tomb is proof of that. What he's professing is that Jesus is real to him now. And so he's affirming, you're my Lord and my God. Jesus has just become so real to him. He has to say that. Now, Jesus does not go easy on Thomas at this point. Matter of fact, there's a little chastisement going on, and while he chastises him, he speaks to us living in 2015. Look with me at the last verse, and it says this in verse 29, Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Who's he talking about, church? Yeah, it's all of us. All of us who didn't see. Jesus is looking ahead in time when physical evidence is no longer available. Have you never seen a resurrection this morning? I haven't. I've never seen one. Yet I believe. So Jesus has just said that you are more blessed than one of His own disciples. That makes me want to understand that word blessed because what is He talking about here? When He says you're more blessed than even Thomas He uses the word "marcurios" and it's in your notes this morning, but I'm not going to put it on the screen. I just want you to understand it this way. It is not a condition of happiness alone. You'll understand this word "marcurios" when Jesus uses the word, you are blessed, if you really interpret it this way. Jesus is doing this. (laughs) Yeah, you go, guy. This is absolutely great. He's congratulating you. You understand this word much better when you hear Jesus saying, congratulations. And here's why. Peter wrote about this. He's an old man when he writes in First Peter, writing to the church about what they have inherited through their belief in Jesus. People who had never seen Jesus, who believed because they understood. Look at the way Peter described it. 1 Peter 1.8. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith. Let's read it together, church. What does it say? The salvation of your souls. See, that's why Jesus is saying congratulations. If you're a believer in me, even though you haven't seen, congratulations because you are receiving the inheritance, your goal. The salvation of your souls. Not to mention the forgiveness of your sin. That's a pretty good deal too, right? (laughs) You get eternity with God and the forgiveness of all your sin. The two go hand in hand. So let's end this by understanding. Thomas is so fortunate to be able to see, but that is not what saved him. Looking at it with human eyes didn't save him. Looking at it with spiritual eyes, he saved not because he sees, but because he believes. That's what Jesus said. You you believe because you see. How about those who have never seen and yet believe? When you personally hit the crisis of belief, if you haven't hit it yet, you will at some point, what you believe about God determines what you do next, how you respond to that crisis. So my question for you as you get ready to go out the door, don't grab your car keys yet, have have you believed this morning? Have you come to the place where you have personally allowed Jesus to become real to you? And if you're one of those who is expecting God to do something more, He's already done it. And if you're expecting God to ask you to do something more, He's already done it. You you don't need to do anything other than believe it and receive what He's offering. Many people think they've, they've got to improve themselves first before they come to God. He's telling you, I am the improvement If you believe, I'll set you on a new course, just like you heard Brad and Beth describe this morning. So if you need to do business with God this morning, I'm going to invite you to do that right where you're sitting. You don't have to get up and walk an aisle or come up and talk with me or talk with anybody else right where you're sitting. You can pray to the Father to receive Jesus, to receive the forgiveness of sin that He offers you, and to start yourself on a brand new path. So I'm going to ask all of us to close our eyes and bow our heads in this moment, It's very private moment. Now, I want you to hear me on this. Accepting what I'm about to offer to you is optional. There's no one waiting out in the parking lot to tackle you, right? It's just very personal between you and God. If you want to believe in Jesus as your Savior, hear this, God will accept His death on your behalf. He died for your sins and He was resurrected as proof that God accepted that. So this is your decision. So if you want to receive Jesus right now, here's how I encourage you to pray. You can just repeat it quietly yourself right back to God. Father, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and I believe that He died for me, that He died for my sins and He was raised back to life. I recognize Him as my Lord and my God. And in the midst of this prayer, you you need to admit to God that you are a sinner and that you need forgiveness. And that's not a secret. All of us have sin. Admit that you're a sinner and that you are willing to turn from your sins. So you're inviting Jesus into your life right now. You invite Him in and you receive Him as your Savior and your Lord. And according to the authority of Scripture, you've just been given a brand new beginning. Father, I pray for everyone in this auditorium, those who are believers and those who might be new believers in this moment, only you know, and for those who are still working through this and still have questions. God, I ask that you would be near to every single one. For those who need to be encouraged in their walk, encourage them. Send them out with boldness today. For those who need to be assured that you are near and that we are dear to you, my God, I ask that you would surround them with the power of your Holy Spirit. Let them feel your presence in a way that they never have before. Father, for those with questions, lead them to the right sources. Help them to find the answers according to your word. I pray for the fellowship of the saints that are gathered here, God, that you allow us to walk out into this world with a powerful witness for what we know to be true. We ask for all of this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.